0: All right, page twenty-five. You'll see a giant cross, and I want I want you to see that there's two aspects or two sides to the cross. The first side is going to deal with the sinner in the sense that he needs to be set free from his sins. Uh, I imagine you um, were uh, were taught or someone along somewhere along your line uh, somewhere along your journey. Uh, someone shared with you the fact that you needed to be saved, that you had sinned, you had broken God's laws, you had, you had sinned against God, and therefore in need of salvation. And I don't know if someone did the Romans road with you, or they just sat went straight to the sinner's prayer, or whatever, but you probably heard something along those lines about how all have sinned, fall, fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, and that we'd all transgress God's law. I mean, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. It was God's way of expressing to you and I, to exposing to everybody that the impossibility of measuring up and following God's law. The Sermon on the Mount was never meant to be a way to live. It was strictly meant to show us how impossible it is to live up to those demands. Because He said, you, you haven't murdered anybody. That's what you've heard, thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you, don't even hate anybody so how many people in this room now are guilty of that so we fail so we don't even go on but he does he says you've heard it said thou shalt commit adultery he might be thinking well I haven't done that yet but he goes and says if you've been lusted after somebody else you're guilty of adultery i won't ask but that's i mean we break the law Left, right, and center. That's, that's what the standard was, was to show to us the impossibility of ever measuring up to that kind of a system. And so I need now to be set free and saved from my sins. And so what happens is when I recognize that my behavior is the problem, then I'm going to pray something like a sinner's prayer. And what it does, what that sinner's prayer looks like, essentially, is agreeing with God that, A, I've sinned, and B, I can't fix the problem. There's nothing I can do to reverse it. There's nothing I can do to fix it. I can't turn back the clock. And so I can't save myself. Therefore, I need a Savior. I need to be saved. I can't save myself. And so what does God do is He died for you and I. So on that page 25, two or three lines below the cross beam, on the left-hand side, you'll see the truth that Christ died for you. Do you see that? Is that an important truth? So I want you to highlight it, to circle it, to put a box around it, a star beside it, because that is an important and significant truth that Christ died for you. And so what's my part then? Well, my part then is to trust in and receive. The trust that that death was enough, and that He died for me, and that that is now giving to me the gift. And that's what I do. I trust in that, and I receive it as a gift. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. So it's not what we've done, it's what God's done for us. So if we were to break down salvation, you know, was it 50-50, where I did 50% and God did 50%? Was it 80-20? 90-10? 99.9 and .1? It was 100% God... Zero me. He did it all. I just receive it as a gift. And therefore, I have nothing to boast about. So basically, grace says, God did it. And by faith, I can say what? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for it. But you see, if that's all salvation was, that's not enough. How many people know who Paul Bernardo is? Murderer, rapist, right? Right. Suppose in Ontario we had the uh, the death penalty, and Paul Bernardo is candidate number one. And so they are, he's waiting on death row, and while he's on death row, he's launching appeal after appeal, trying to overturn the uh, the penalty. And while he's there, there's an older gentleman that comes along and introduces himself, and he gets to visit with Paul and gets to know Paul, and he develops a genuine love for Paul Bernardo, even though he's a murderer and a rapist. And over time. You know, he begins to think, you know, he's going to die soon. And Paul Bernardo is still young. And it's sad that this young man is going to lose his life. And me, I've lived my life. And when I die, no one's going to miss me. My family's gone. I'm all alone. And I love Paul. I wish there was something I could do for him. And he's thinking and thinking. And then he finally says, you know what? I want to die in his place. I want to take the punishment he deserves onto myself. So he goes and he talks to the lawyer and the judge, and they are taken aback. They never, never heard of this, and but they say, okay, I guess that's the way the law was written. It doesn't say he has to die; just someone has to die. And so, sure enough, no more appeals. The day of the execution comes, but instead of Paul Bernardo coming into the execution room or chamber, who is coming in? The older man. And so he's there, and he sees Paul Bernardo, and he might even look to Paul Bernardo, and he look him right in the eye and say, Paul, I'm doing this for you. Do you think there might be some tears in Paul Bernardo's eyes? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. In fact, Paul Bernardo might even say back to him and say, I can't believe this. I, 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 will, I will do my best for you. I will make you proud and make this death worth it. And so sure enough, they execute the older man. He's dead. And now the warden turns to Paul Bernardo and what does he say? You are free to go. Are there any conditions on the freedom? None. He is completely free. No probation, nothing. Because the punishment has been paid in full. I tell you the story to ask you one question. Do you want Paul Bernardo, he's got to live somewhere, do you want him to maybe move next door to you? You could have had him over for Thanksgiving. If he moves now, you can have him over for Christmas. You know, maybe if you have a young daughter, he you can, you know, you know, you have little children, you can babysit while you're gone, you and your wife can go to the buffet that my wife and I went to and eat actually. Or, or maybe if you got an older daughter, he can date your older daughter, or maybe he can date one of you girls. How many people would like that? How many people want Paul Bernardo as their neighbor? Best friend? No one? I don't want him either, because the problem is what? Not what he did, but who he is the problem is not that paul bernardo murdered and raped somebody he's a murderer and the rapist that's the problem with it and you see as ridiculous as it would be for us to expect paul bernardo to suddenly have a changed life just because somebody died for him for many christians that's how they view the christian life that now that jesus has died for them that's to somehow now to change them but it simply wouldn't if salvation was only Jesus dying for you and I, we'd still be a murderer and a rapist. You might say, Well, hold on, that's a little struf. That's strong words. I'm not like Paul Bernardo. Well, what did Jesus say? If you've hated somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. murder. Before salvation, we weren't that different from Paul Bernardo. In fact, we weren't different at all. We were just as dark and just as black. But the reality is God did something far more. You see, now we come to the cross and realize that I need to be saved from who? Me. From myself. This deals with my identity. And so to do that, again, I'm going to follow a very similar pattern, but this time I have to agree with God that I'm the problem. That I'm a failure that i simply no matter how hard i try no matter how much i strive i simply cannot live the christian life i simply can't measure up i'm not good enough i'm a total failure and the good news is the moment you admit that you pass the test because god what does he expect from you and i apart from him john 15:5 one of the great verses of the new testament God said, Jesus says, unless you abide, unless you live in me, you can do very little. Nothing. No, you can do nothing. I looked up the Greek word for nothing one time. You know what it means? Nothing. nothing. Go figure. Nothing. You and I, apart from him, can't do anything of value and worth. It means that we're a failure. We're supposed to be a failure in and of ourselves. But our pride says, no, I can do something. I can do something. I can offer you something, God. Well, the very fact that He crucified you on that cross thought of what, you, what was His judgment, what He thought about what you could offer Him. He said, I don't want it. And there's no good in it. So let's get rid of it and start from scratch. And so He created, He formed a new person. But to understand that, I've got to realize... That I'm the problem, and I'm a failure, and I cannot fix the problem. There is no redeeming the flesh. There is no fixing the flesh. There is no improving the flesh. That's simply not the answer. The answer instead is that I died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And on the right-hand side of that page, two or three lines below the crossbeam, you'll see that same concept, that same verse. And just as it is important that Jesus died for you and I, it is important to know that, that I died with Christ. So go ahead and circle it, underline it, put an asterisk beside it, highlight it, because it is crucial that we would know that we have been crucified with Christ. And then I trust in that. I receive it. Colossians two six. we looked at this verse last night. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. How did we receive Him? By faith. So, how will we walk in Him? By faith. Meaning, just as He did 100% of the work to save us, He's going to do 100% of the work through us if we put our faith in Him, if we trust Him. And so, by God's grace, He did it, and by faith, we can say, Thank you, Jesus. But there's these two aspects, these two sides of the cross. This is what we learned at salvation. But this, on the right side, is what allows us to live here right now. So it allows us to experience heaven on earth before we actually get to heaven. Amen? Okay, page 26. So far tonight, all we have talked about are the facts. These are the facts. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ to save you and rescue you... The fact is, you died with Christ, past tense. You were buried with Christ, past tense. You rose again with Christ, past tense. And you are presently seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, and Christ is your life. He's your source, He's your power, He's your strength. That's just the facts. God said it, that settles it. The question is, do we believe it now? And so what I what we've talked about is the most important thing you're going to learn this weekend. What we're going to talk about now is what you're, the most important thing you'll do this weekend. What you will do in response to what we've talked about tonight. And so let's take a look at the journey to the cross. We're going to look at three reasons why Christians don't experience the abundant life. Three reasons why Christians don't experience the abundant life. The first reason they don't experience it is because... They've never heard they died with Christ. They've never heard they died with Christ, and so inevitably they're the one trying to live the Christian life. Now, I went twenty plus years as a Christian. I, I grew up in a Christian home, went to went to church, to Sunday school, to Christian grades, to a Christian grade school. I spent my summers at a Christian camp. I didn't know there anyone that there was somebody that wasn't a Christian at one point in my life. I mean, that's that's all I had. And I had not once remembered in the first 20 years of my Christian life knowing that I had been crucified with Christ. That's not to say it was never taught. Because it could have just bounced off the top of my head and out. Because I had been doing this. Or if I was awake, it was going in one ear and out the other. But I had never heard it. And so it was of no value and no use to me. The illustration for this is Mr. Yates. How many people have heard of Mr. Ira Yates? He was a... Um, uh, a young man in his late teens, in the 1920s, late 1920s, when he inherited a plot of land in Texas. And uh, Mr. Yates, he and his wife, his Ira, and his wife, his name is Anne, they were looking forward to a very simple life, raising some goats and some sheep and planting some crops and, and you know, living the nice life as a farmer. But late 1929, the stock market crashed which then introduced the great depression that lasted 10 years which makes our recession look rather tame. And the result was Mr. Yates and his wife were now living off food stamps. They were begging and struggling barely getting by because nobody wanted you know could afford their food and nobody could pay them and so they just they were struggling. And they never really recovered from it. So even though the the great depression lifted they never really recovered, and so for the next 30, 40, 50 years, he continued to live like a beggar, continued to live like a hermit, until one day he gets a knock on his door from a wildcat oil prospector. You know what a wildcat oil prospector is? It's someone that uses a very fancy instrument to find oil. It's a dart and a map. He throws a dart, and that's where he digs. Very fancy, very fancy. Um, he has no idea. He's just hoping. So he knocks on Mr. Yates' door, and Mr. Yates shows up, looking a bit like Grizzly Adams. He's now 60, 70 years old, and he says, uh, can I dig to see if there's oil here? And Mr. Yates says, go ahead, I'm not using the land. Might as well somebody use it. So he goes and he digs, and guess what he discovers? Oil. Not, one, not just the largest, one of the largest uh, oil deposits in Texas, but in all the world. And he's just overjoyed. He's so happy, so thrilled. He comes to Mr. Yates and gets him to sign a contract where for every barrel of oil they take off the land, he will get paid for it. Well, it doesn't take long before the checks start rolling in. So when did Mr. Yates become a millionaire? The moment he inherited that land in the 1920s, he inherited everything in the land. All that oil. So for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, however long he had it, he was a millionaire. That was his actual reality. But how he lived was like a pauper because he didn't know about the land. Well, this, you know, they were so thrilled about this oil, they renamed the town after him and his wife, and they called it Iran, Texas. I'm thinking they're regretting that name now, but, uh, but that's what they called it. But because nobody told him about the oil... He couldn't take advantage of it. And so he lived like a beggar. He lived like a pauper. And if you and I don't know that we died with Christ, we can't take advantage of that truth. And inevitably, we're going to be trying to do something to crucify, to get rid of their old self, the old man, because the devil's going to come around and say to us, he's still alive. Look, look at this. Look at that. He's still around. You better do something. And you're going to run around shadow boxing with yourself and wondering why you're so tired and not winning. The reality is, it's over. The old Jew is dead and gone. Now, number two, the second reason why Christians don't experience the abundant life, why they don't experience Christ living in them on a consistent basis, is they've heard they've died with Christ, but they've never believed it. They've never entered in by faith. It's too spectacular. It's too hard to understand. They don't, they don't feel dead. They don't look dead in their behavior. And so therefore, they don't believe it. And simply because they don't understand it, it can't be real. But the reality is, it's true. The question is, do you believe it? See, the, an illustration for this is really God's people in the wilderness. God's, uh, God's children, He said, I'm going to rescue from Egypt the land of bondage where you are slaves, to take you into Canaan, the land of many ites. That's what he says in Exodus three eight. And so that was the desire. Now Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Our hymology, you know what hymology is? The theology we've learned from our hymns? That's taught us that Canaan is heaven. Oh, when we cross Jordan's river, and oh, what a day will it be. No, that's not Canaan. That's not heaven. Canaan is a picture of the abundant life for you and I today. Why do I say that? Think about when, I, when Israelites, when they finally crossed over into Canaan, who was there? Theites. When you and I get to heaven, are there going to be unbelievers and sinners there? No. They had to fight for Canaan. Will you and I have to fight for heaven? No. They sinned in Canaan. Will we sin in heaven? they lost Canaan. Will we lose heaven? No. Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Canaan is a picture of the abundant life that Jesus came to give us today, right now. And so that was God's desire to take Israel into Canaan. And after a few months, they cross the wilderness and they come up to the Jordan River when it's a little babbling brook and it's time to enter. But Moses sends some spies. And it's time to cross. And the spies go in and they come back with their report. And Joshua and Caleb say, let's go. It's ours for the taking. Let's go. Let's take it. Let's enjoy it. Yeah, they're giants. There's big people there. But the food is great. But God has given us the land. You see, they knew, they knew that Canaan belonged to them because God promised it. They put their faith in who? And it didn't matter how big the giants were, how many of the giants there were. It was that God said it, therefore that settles it. And so they are ready to go. But the other ten yokels, what do they say? Oh, we don't stand a chance. If you read Numbers 13, 30-33, to 33, you'll read where they the report is there's Nephilim. they are giants. They devour their people. We are but grasshoppers in their eyes, and we don't stand a chance. So they put out a bad report to the people. And so 2.5 million Jews picked up stones and are ready to kill Joshua and Caleb, except Moses got in the way. And they refused to believe God. See, they looked at the problem and said, we don't stand a chance. And so they didn't want to go. But Joshua and Caleb saw the same problem, but they saw God and said, let's go. So Joshua and Caleb believed, everybody else didn't. And so God swore by His wrath, He said, that they will never enter into My rest. They will never enter into the abundant life. And so they spent the next 40 years wandering the wilderness. And you see, for you and I, if we don't receive the reality of our death with Christ, we will never enter into Canaan. I don't have time to explain to you, but one of the books we have on our shelves that we'd be happy to take your money for is uh, is Promised Land Living. And it, it details... Um, the, the journey of the Israelites throughout the book of Joshua and how that parallels for you and I, for the Christian life. And the crossing over of the Jordan River is really a picture of our death with Christ. They take 12 stones on the wilderness side, bury it into the water where it's dead and buried, and they take 12 new stones out of the Jordan River and put it on the Canaan side, representing the new life. And so the entryway into Canaan, their entryway across the Jordan, is really to receive by faith the fact that you and I died with Christ. But if we don't if we don't believe it because we somehow judge God's word in our experience greater than God's word then we will be destined to wander the wilderness. And so the position provision sorry position is full provision but the condition the way we're living is unbelief. Now, recognize this, did God bless his children in the wilderness? Sure he did. They had food dropped from heaven. They didn't have to grow it. They didn't have to kill it. It just showed up as much as they ever wanted. He had water coming from rocks for them. Their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. And they had 40 years in the wilderness. They had cloud by day, fire by by night to keep them warm. They were protected from all the raiders that came after them. God blessed them, make no mistake. But was he pleased with them? And sometimes do not mistake God's blessing for being where you you ought to be. Because sometimes God blesses you just because He loves you. But that's not necessarily where He wants you to be. He did not want the children of Israel to wander the wilderness, but He loved them and blessed them anyways. What He wanted them is for them to trust Him. What He wanted was for them to believe and depend upon Him. And that's what He's asking for you and I. It's not, do you understand that you died with Christ? It's not, do you understand all the details of it? The question is, will you believe it by faith? Will you enter in by faith? And it's not an easy one, but it's a necessary step that we need to take. Well, that brings us to the third reason, and this is the big one that I want to talk about for the rest of this evening. And this is the group of people who've heard... Who've believed and they've entered in by faith that they died with Christ, but they're not willing to lose what they regard as life. They're not willing to cooperate with God's pruning process. You see, when we show up here on planet Earth, we develop all kinds of schemes and strategies to satisfy and get our needs met. Maybe it's through our talents and our job, or our smarts, or our skills. Maybe it's through other people, through relationships, but we become dependent on others and other places to find life. Then we get saved, but all that ways and strategies of living don't immediately drop off. In fact, we just often carry them into our Christian life and may even try to clean some of them up, but we just carry on the same pattern of living. Still looking to other people, relationships, friends, our career, our finances for security, Worth, acceptance, significance. And God, in His love for you and I, says, I want to be that. Will you trust me? But to do that, I need to prune, I need to cut away what you think is life in order that you can receive the real deal from me. The problem with this person is, they're saying, no. God, I will not let go of this relationship. I will not let go of this person. I will not let go of this money, this finances. I am relying upon this to meet my needs. And so I need this in addition to you, God. But God says, I want to be everything to you. I want to be your all in all, just like you saying on that Sunday. But I want you to actually mean it this time. But this person is not willing to let go. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that will save it. If you are holding on to your fleshly ways of satisfying your life, you will never be satisfied. You'll be like the woman at the well who will thirst the next day. doesn't matter how many men she's had, she is still thirsty. But if you let go, if you're willing to lose what you regard as life, you will discover (laughs) Jesus is enough. He is everything you need. That Jesus plus nothing means you've got everything. He's all you need. John 12, 24, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We call this the journey to the cross. Some have called it the way of the cross. Because what happens here is the work of the cross, what we talked about earlier tonight, about the fact that you died, were buried, was raised and seated in heavenly places, that's already taken place. That's the work of the cross. The way of the cross is now how God makes this real in our experience. Have you ever noticed that you can learn about something, but until you actually go through it, it's meaningless? Ladies, for those that have had children and gone through childbirth, did you ever read a book about it? Talk to women about it? Maybe even watch a video on it? And then what did you discover? They had no idea. (laughs) They had no idea until you were there giving birth. There's something about that experience of it that's so crucial and so important. And so you and I, we need to go on our journey to the cross. We need to experience the cross in order to experience by reality the fact that Christ lives in us, that the old you has been crucified. And so what Jesus is saying here, this grain of wheat, you and I are that grain of wheat. If that grain of wheat just sits outside on a table somewhere, what will ever happen to it? Nothing. But if you take that grain of wheat and you bury it in the dirt, put some pressure on it from the soil, water it, or maybe the storms of life come, the heat from the sun comes out, and that outer shell begins to break apart and wear down. And then the life within begins to burst forth. Well, you and I are that grain of wheat. And our outer shell has been our flesh, the sting that we've been using to protect us. And so God buries you, puts some pressure on you, some storms of life, some heats to come upon you, to weaken, to corrode your flesh, in order that the life of Christ within you burst forth and comes out. And if that happens, then you and I get to be fruity Christians. Isn't that exciting? But to do that, we need to be fellow heirs with Christ. Indeed, we need to suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him, it says in Romans eight, sixteen and seventeen. There is something that I think the church has failed to teach, and that is the role of suffering. I believed a gospel for many years that said, come to Jesus and all your problems would go away. Anyone else fall for that scam? Okay, I'm not the only one. Okay, good. (laughs) It's a scam. It's not true. So in my thinking, whenever a problem was coming my way, I immediately thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm out of the will of God. This isn't good. This isn't right. I need to fix it, change it, pray against it, get rid of it, somehow escape it. But the reality is that's not the case. The reality is there is great value in suffering. Suffering is not something to be avoided. It's something to be embraced because of what suffering can produce within you. It's not for the sake of pain. If you enjoy pain, come see me. We'll talk. We can help you. It's for what the pain can produce within you. It's the fact that it will allow you to discover the life of Christ within you and depend upon Him and not yourself. But to experience that, you have to go through suffering. How many people have turned heard of the term brokenness? Brokenness is a good word, I like it, but it's not a biblical word. You'll never find anywhere in Scripture where it uses brokenness. It's, it's derived from what happens with horse training. And I think in the church again, we've misunderstood what brokenness is. See, brokenness for these horses is where they surrendered themselves over to the cowboy. There was a group of wild horses in the state of Wyoming, and uh, they were multiplying exponentially to the point where the people were worried that they, the ground, the land, could no longer sustain them. There wasn't enough food for them. And they were worried about now all these horses dying of starvation, but not only them, but they were going to eat all the other animals that were dependent upon these, um, these these plants, the deer and the antelope and so forth. And so what they decided to do was to go thin the herd, go and just shoot one-third of the herd sort of thing. But you can imagine there's a certain group of people that wouldn't enjoy that. And so they protested it, and they had to come up with plan B. So plan B was to still shoot the horses, but this time with tranquilizer tranquilizer darts, and then auction them off to cowboys for a ridiculously low price on the condition that the cowboy would save them or would care for them and protect them and, and look after them. So imagine you're this horse. One day you're free. You do what you want. You eat what you want. You go where you want to go. You are your master of your own domain. Then suddenly somebody hits you with a sharp object. You black out and wake up in a prison cell called a stall. And you have a metal object, a bit, jammed in your mouth with a leather harness around you. What are you thinking right now? This isn't good. Uh, This isn't good. And you may be like rubbing your head up against the stall, trying to get rid of the harness. And then this man, this cowboy comes up, and he looks a little suspicious. And then he throws a saddle on your back, and then he tightens the saddle so tight, it squeezes the air out of your lungs. Now how are you feeling? At least now you know who your enemy is, Right. And so you're looking at this guy, and you're upset. Maybe again, you're rubbing up against the stall, trying to get rid of the saddle, until finally, this mean, cruel cowboy, he has the gall, the nerve to actually climb up onto your back, and he begins to kick you with his sharp sharp spurs to move you on while he pulls on the harness that is in your mouth. What are you thinking right now? I am going to eject this guy and make him to be the first person on the moon, Mm -hmm. as far as I know. He is going to leave me, and he begins to kick and he begins to buck. And every time he's doing this, the cowboy is poking him, pulling him, doing all sorts of things. And this horse might be thinking... This is miserable. This is horrible. I was so much better off before. I could do what I wanted to do, go where I wanted to go, eat where I wanted, what I wanted to eat. But now, I'm a prisoner. Now, I'm being tortured. Now, I can only eat as much as I'm given when I'm given it. I was so much better off before I ever met this cowboy. But you see, what would have happened to that horse if he was left to his own devices? He would die. And there's a way that seems right under horses, but it's the way of death. You see, who's the cowboy in the story? Guess who's the horse? Might explain the long faces right now. But but we're the horse. And God is trying to break us. Now, He's not trying to break you because there's something fundamentally wrong with you now. Instead, what He's trying to do is bring your will under His submission. That's what brokenness is. But again, I think in the church what we've done is we've equated suffering with brokenness. And up to this point where this horse has continued to buck and kick, has he suffered? If I stick a metal piece in your mouth and poke you with some sharp objects, you would say the same thing. This is suffering, but he is not broken. And there are many Christians who have suffered but have never surrendered. And I don't know if I could think of anything sadder for the Christian. Because suffering hurts. If it didn't hurt, it's not suffering. It's kind of, you know, by definition. And for you and I, not to respond to that suffering with surrender means that we've wasted all that suffering. All that pain, all that hurt, produced nothing but pain. But if I surrender, if I submit myself over and my will is broken to the point where I place it under the power of my cowboy, God, my father, my dad, then that pain and that suffering accomplish what the purpose was, was to bring me into a deeper relationship with him. And if that happens, then maybe that cowboy will trust me with something he counts so precious, which is another person. And that's what God is wanting to do with you and I. That's the role of this journey to the cross. That is the purpose of this suffering. Is to teach us how to live in Him. So we all have a personal journey to the cross. Fourteen times Jesus said, come follow me. Usually in the context, He was talking about our own journey to the cross. Have you ever considered why Jesus suffered the way He did on His journey to the cross? I mean, if the lamb sacrifice that the Israelites sacrificed for 1,500 years before Jesus was to take a lamb, slice his throat, blood is shed, sins atoned for, Jesus, the Lamb of God, why did He suffer what He suffered? The lambs weren't kicked, they weren't beaten, they weren't mocked, they weren't scourged, but Jesus was. Why did Jesus go through all that abuse? Well, let's look at a verse that will mess with your theology. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 5 and verse 8. I say it will mess with your theology because, it, well, at least it messed with mine. Maybe it won't mess with yours. Maybe you're smarter than I was. But Hebrews 5 8 says that although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Now, in Sunday school, I learned some things about God. He's all powerful, he's all present, and he's all knowing. How does an all knowing God learn something? Do you see why it messed with my theology for a while? But then I realized before Jesus showed up on earth, who did he obey? No one. He's God. He's at the top. There's no one to obey. There's no one above Him. But the moment He arrived here on planet Earth, He was now a man under authority. He was a man who had to learn to be obedient. So how did He learn obedience? Was it by taking a course? Reading a book? Praying a prayer? It was how? Through the things that He suffered. Now if Jesus is the example of what man was meant to be, how are you and I going to, learn, to suffer, learn obedience? You see, think about it. When you and I, when we show up here on planet Earth, are we obedient? No. We are rebellious, disobedient, wicked little sinners. That's what we are. Isn't that exciting? That's exactly what you and I were when we showed up here on planet Earth. And then one day we see that and we make the best decision we can ever make in our lives where we surrender ourselves. We receive this gift of salvation. And God in that moment takes you out of Adam, places you in Christ, crucifies you, buries you, raises you up as a brand new person, seated with Him in heavenly places with Christ as your life. But guess what I need to begin, guess what I need to learn now? I've got to learn obedience. Cause that, that first moment where I received Christ was the first act of obedience that I ever did. And now I gotta learn to be obedient. I got to learn to trust Him and i learned that obedience i learned that trusting not in a book not by going to a course or a conference or sitting through a sermon but how through the things that i suffer by going to the school of hard knocks and so that's what this journey to the cross is all about is to teach me the suffering but what's so great about it is that jesus went that that took that journey first He walked that path for you and I first so He can now come back to you and I and be our empathetic high priest and comfort us while we're going through all that pain and sorrow. He can help us here. And so we need to go to the cross too. There are four reasons for this journey to the cross. Four purposes. Number one is to reveal our flesh. It's to expose our flesh to who? Who? to ourselves. Not your friends, not your neighbors, and most certainly not your spouse. You know why? Because they already know it. (laughs) We tend to be the last ones to know it. Really? That's my flesh? Oh yeah, that's your flesh. And so what this journey to the cross teaches us and exposes to us is the ways and the methods that we've been using to cope. What we have been doing to try to get our needs met. The next thing it does is it begins to to show us or bring us to the end of that self-dependence. Is one thing to know what your flesh looks like, but it's another thing entirely to want to give up on it. And you see we tend to want to give up on something when it stops working. When we finally realize that no matter how many times I use it, it's just not working. That's when we give up to it, give up on it. And so what suffering does is exposes the the futility and the bankruptcy of the flesh and our ways of living. It's to set us free from our idols. All those people, relationships, money, whatever we've been looking to, to provide life, (laughs) love, worth, acceptance, security, anything you've looked to other than God. It's to set you free from that idol. And then finally to reveal His life within us so we can be set free in reality that i've learned that obedience that i've learned that faith that i've learned that trust that it's no longer i who lives but christ who lives in me that's the purpose of the journey to the cross and there's no shortcuts there's no long cuts <laughs> there's no way around it this is the only way remember what jesus said on the cross before going to the cross in the garden of gethsemane father if there's another way let this cup pass but not my will, your will be done. Well, if Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, what's going to happen for you and I? The same thing. So let's take a look at this this journey to the cross and the word Philippians three verses ten and eleven begins with Paul's desire to know him and the power of his resurrection. And this know is not an intellectual know; it's not to know about Jesus. The church knows a lot about Jesus. I mean, we live in a day and age where information about Christ is is plentiful. I don't know if there's ever been a day and age where information about God, about Christ, has been so easily accessible. I mean, you right now probably have phones in your pockets that are, you know, an entire library of sermons, of Bible um, uh, dictionaries, of lexicons, of of commentaries, multiple translations at your disposal. You can go to all kinds of sermons and and all kinds of churches and never even leave your home. But that's not the knowing Paul's talking about. Because that's not the knowing we need. It's important to know about him. Don't get me wrong. It's good information. But then there's another knowledge, a heart knowledge. An intimate knowledge. And this word, know Him, is the same word where Adam knew Eve and she conceived the child. It's that intimate connection. And Paul says, my desire is to know Jesus intimately and the power of of His resurrection. How many people want that? To know Him, to really know Him and His resurrection, the power of His resurrection. That's evidence of salvation. If you don't have that desire, then I challenge you to check to see if you're even of the faith. Because God, I think, puts that desire within our hearts to draw after Him, to go to Him. And so it starts with this desire. Is that a good desire? Well, the verse falls apart after that because it goes on to say, and I want a fellowship in the sharing in His sufferings. The word fellowship, someone once said, is it's two fellows in the same ship will experience the same storm. So if I'm going to fellowship in the sharing of his sufferings, that means that what Jesus went through, what could I expect? The same thing. That's the process. That's so crucial, so vital. And what it's going to result in is that I be conformed to his death. That I'd be conformed to the reality that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But it takes this journey, this sharing in his sufferings, for that to become an everyday reality. In order that I may attain to that life, to his resurrection. Again, there's no other way. Yes? Can I just say something? I've read Philippians a thousand times and heard it explained. I don't know how many times, but nobody's explained to me except to like what you've done thing, Ever. It's just amazing to me. That the explanation of how we're to know the power of his resurrection is in the sufferings we experience today. I've just never connected those two, ever. Those sufferings become our friend. They become one of our greatest teachers. And again, I'm not trying to be critical of, our, of the church because we are the church, but I think we've dropped the ball as a church explaining the role of sufferings. Because whenever suffering comes into our lives, what's our first reaction? Pick up the phone, call the prayer team to pray against it. You can pray, but pray this, Father, use it. Do whatever you want in the suffering. Do whatever you want in here that I may know you in the power of your resurrection. It's a far better prayer. First Peter 4, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Meaning, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. How many people want to be done with sin? So guess what it's going to take? So as to, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, no longer living after our flesh, but now for the will of God. Because we've learned now to be obedient. We've learned to trust Him. We've learned to follow Him. But this is what sufferings require. Verses 12 and 13 Beloved, do not be surprised by the fire ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. If something is not strange, what is it? It's normal. It is the normal maturation process of the Christian to go through this suffering. That's why it's so important to embrace it, to receive it and let God do what He's doing in you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. What does that imply you already were doing? How many people are rejoicing at the pain? Now again, if you're rejoicing about the pain, not healthy, come see me, we'll set some time up and help you. Instead, we can rejoice knowing what the pain is going to do. We can rejoice knowing what the suffering is going to do. So we keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory, we may rejoice with great exaltation. When the suffering is over and you see the life of Christ, there'll be great exaltation. Okay, I've understood this verse and, uh, I don't know, like, it, uh, it says, but to the degree that you share the suffering with Christ, mm-hmm. I think I've understood that mean like more like suffering, in the sense of, for His cause, as opposed to just a generalized experience of suffering you're talking about? Yeah, well, here's the thing. There is no such word as, um, you know, when they talk about fire ordeal or trials and tribulation, that's just trials and tribulation. There's, there, there isn't a religious or a holy trials and tribulation, and a non-holy one. It's just fire ordeals. So how many people are going through a fire ordeal right now? going through a trial going through a tribulation I got good news for you God wants to do something in it so he's not he's not talking about the persecution that they were facing well I don't think so I mean he could that's part of it but again you come back to Romans 8 28 and 29 that we looked at earlier tonight and God causes all things he's not God causes only holy things not God causes all righteous acts of judgment or judgment. Persecution, but God causes all things to work together for our good. What's our good? Verse 29. That we might be conformed into the image of God. That we would have the revelation of His glory, His life. So I don't think it's just religious persecution that He's talking about, it's any fire ordeal. A screaming child, you know, an accident, anything is an opportunity for us to trust in Christ. So if you're going through a fire ordeal, you know what that means? You're going the right way. You're not going the wrong way, you're going the right way. So keep on going, and keep on rejoicing in it. Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff do comfort me. I want you to know, during this time, there's nothing to fear. That's happened so often. We get so worried, so uptight over what we're going through. And the reality is there's nothing to fear because God says, I'm right here. I'm with you. I will carry you through this if necessary. But we're going to get through it together on the other side. And on the other side, you will know me better than you could ever possibly dream of. Will you trust me? Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was broken, in essence, if we want to use that term, but before I surrendered to Him, I went astray. I went my own way, but now I keep Your Word. And so it brings about a lifestyle change, this journey to the cross. In verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It's good for me that I was suffering. Why? That I might learn Thy statutes. That I might learn His ways. Discover the character and the nature of God. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. It's a sign of God's faithfulness. It's a sign that God loves you. sounds a little weird, but think of it as a parent to a child. Do you ever discipline your kids? Why? Because you just like kicking them? Because you love them. And if you didn't love them, then you wouldn't discipline them because you love them, you're going to discipline them. That's exactly what Psalm 119, verse 75 is. Same thing, Psalm, or Hebrews verse 12, verses 1 to 11, is all about that. The love of the Father who is willing to discipline because He loves. Sign of His faithfulness. Verse 92 of 119, Psalm 119. If thy law, your word, had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. You'll discover that it's not another person, not Not your friends, not your counselor, not your spouse, not your church that's going to be able to get you through this. Because God's not interested in you trusting in those things. It's God that's going to get you through. I am the true vine, he says. Meaning, I am the one that's going to be that source of life. Not another person. Now, he may use other people, but those other people will be meant to point you back to him. So that he might be life to you. And then Hebrews 12, 11, one of my favorite verses. All suffering, all discipline, all sorrow, uh, for the moment doesn't seem joyful, but sorrowful. One of the great understatements. All pain hurts. Yeah, it hurts a lot. Yet, yet to those who have been trained by it, those who have learned obedience, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of Righteousness. And so what this journey to the cross, this time of suffering is doing, is is yielding, it's going to teach us to yield the life of Christ. So it's so important. So, Philippians 2, 5-8. to Remember this verse that we looked at earlier tonight. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He gave up His rights as God. So the question for you and I, are we willing to give up on ourselves? Continues in verse 6, "...but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearances of man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Are you willing to humble yourself and be obedient by going to the cross? So what we have here on page 27, I think, of your syllabus is we have what I call the wedge. And we're now going to fellowship in the sharing of His sufferings, meaning we need to give up on ourselves and humble ourselves. And we will share in some of the things that Jesus suffered on His journey to the cross. For example, rejection. He was rejected by His own people. The ones He came to save. And you will find often that you will be rejected by your own people fact, one of the people that God uses the most to crucify Christians is other Christians. We have a book we sell. It used to be called Crucified by Christians. Christians didn't like that title, so we changed it to Exquisite Agony. But the premise is that God uses other Christians to, to reject you. And you might think, why? Why would He do that? Well, it's to expose where you find life, where you find acceptance. Do you find it in God or do you depend on other people to provide that? You'll never know until you're rejected. You'll never know until you're tested. And so you can expect to be rejected. Falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. All kinds of manner of lies told about him. And I love how the answer in, in 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to uh 22, sorry, 21 to 23. Uh, it says that we have been given this example in Jesus Christ to follow in His footsteps, to follow His pattern. That in Him there is no deceit, and when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When threatened, He did not threaten back. He could have. I mean, when He was attacked, He could have turned around on them and says, "Oh, by the way, on Tuesday you did this, this, and this, and this. Do you want me to tell you about Monday? Mm-hmm. I'm good." He could have done that and shut them all up. He could have said to them, uh, just so you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I'm the Lord. So I'm taking names and I'll see you on judgment day. He could have said that. But he didn't threaten back. This is what's so cool about verse 23. What did he do? But he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Father, I'm trusting you. Father, I'm trusting you. See, what do we do when we're falsely accused? We defend ourselves. We defend the very thing God's trying to expose and get rid of. And you see, maybe, maybe these people, these vile, wicked enemies who are attacking you, maybe it's not so false what they're saying to you. Maybe this is what God's using to expose your flesh. See, who did God use to speak to Balaam? His donkey. So apparently, God's not too fussy with who he uses to speak through. I'm the prime example this evening. He's not too fussy with who he uses to speak through. And so maybe you are being falsely accused by your enemy, but maybe it's not so false. Maybe your enemy is the donkey that God's using to try to get through to you, to expose your flesh. You may be weak. Just as Jesus couldn't carry His own cross and others had to come and carry the cross for Him, you will probably experience weakness. Now, you won't experience all these things and all of the things that, that Jesus suffered, but you might experience some of them. And I think weakness is one of the common ones. And the reason being is, does God want you to be a strong Christian? Remember Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, Lord, I got this thorn in the flesh. And I was thinking, if you got rid of it, I'd be such a better Christian for you. And when God didn't hear that prayer, He prayed it again. And when God still didn't hear it, He prayed it again. So God comes home, and on the answer machine, there's three messages from Paul. And then finally God calls him back, and He says, Paul, I've thought about it, and um, no. My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Another lie. God does not want you to be a strong Christian. That's the truth. The reality is God wants you to be a weak Christian because when you're weak, who do you trust in? You trust in Him. But as long as you're strong, who do you trust in? Yourself. And so God will use this journey to the cross to weaken you. So you no longer trust in yourself, but you trust in Him. And so Paul says, I will boast about my weaknesses. I will boast about trials and tribulations and persecutions and shortcomings and insults. I will boast about those things because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jesus was exposed and that's what you will find often is your flesh will be exposed. If there's sin in your life, it will be exposed. Not to embarrass you, not to shame you, not to humiliate you, but to set you free. But to release you from it. And it's a glorious opportunity. You may be seen as a failure. You might actually be a failure. So be it. It's to help expose where do you find life. Do you find it in what you do, in your performance, in the fact that you've been a success? If that's the case, then you can watch to see that you will be a glorious failure to discover that your righteousness, your value, your worth comes in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so your failure might be the back door to success. Abandoned. Who who abandoned Jesus on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the reality is, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You know what that means? means He will never leave you nor forsake you, and He will be with you to the end of the age. He's not going anywhere. That means, can you ever walk away from God? No, because then He would have left you. So, if you go somewhere, He goes with you. If you go to this strip club, He's there. He's wondering why you're there, but He's there with you. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. The problem is, what does our feeler say? I'm all alone. My prayers go up, they hit the ceiling, they come right back down. I'm all alone. And the question is, are we going to learn to walk by faith and not by our feelings? We're to release our rights. And if you turn to page 28 and 29, you'll see a long list of rights to surrender. Rights such as the right to be successful, the right to be happy, the right to be loved, the right to be acceptable, the right to be well thought of, the right to be healthy. The right to be secure. The right to be right. That was a tough one for me to give up. But Lord, I'm right. Who cares? Will you give up the right? Will you surrender? There's a long list of rights to give up. And we hold on to those rights so dearly, so tightly. And the question is, who gave you the right? Who gave you that right that you hold on to? The reality is we're to be like Jesus in this case. To have the same mindset and the same attitude. To give up our rights. To empty ourselves. To humble ourselves. To let go. And then to forgive just as Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I know what you're doing. You're setting me free. And you're using these people to crucify me to bring that about. So forgive them. I want you to know, during this time, it's not about your striving. It's about your surrender. Your striving got you into the mess. Your surrender to Him will get you out. That's all that this is working towards, is bringing you to that point where, say, I give up on myself, God, and let you be God in my life. And so what we have on page 30 of your syllabus, if you want to turn there, is what some have called the Gethsemane prayer or a total surrender prayer, or a selfers prayer. And what it is, is a prayer where we recognize the fact that we've been living out of our own self, and we now want Jesus to live in us. And we're asking Father to do that work. And so I want to explain this prayer to you because it's not a simple, trite prayer. It's a dangerous prayer in the sense that a lot of stuff can happen but it might be the second most valuable prayer you'll ever pray in your life behind salvation. It begins with Dear Abba. Literally, Dear Dada. That's how intimate relationship you have now with Father. Dear Abba, thank you for delivering me from life in Adam and placing me in your Son, Jesus Christ. It begins with a word of thanks that you rescued me. But now these next three paragraphs are chances are where people will choke on it where they will struggle or st- stumble and struggle to get through it says i confess that i've been a selfer and a total failure in and of myself the reality is you are supposed to be a total failure in and of yourself because apart from jesus you can do nothing but man's pride says oh no i can do lots i can do lots the reality is it's wood hay and, stu- and uh, stubble it will be burnt up it is worthless And so I have to come to see that in and of myself, I am a failure completely. That I've been struggling to live a holy life, but out of my own resources, out of my own ability. And so I admit that I've been trying to get my needs met through people, achievements, and possessions. I've been looking for life, but in all the wrong places. In my husband, in my wife, in my kids, in my job, in my ministry, in my friends, in my success. I've been looking for life in all the wrong places. And so I now give up on my self-sufficiency and do hereby surrender my life unconditionally into your hands. I give up all my so-called rights and expectations and give you permission to make me into the kind of person you want me to be. This is not rededication. Rededication is, God, I will try harder next time. This is surrender. This is, God, you do it. You do in me what is necessary. I give myself over to you completely. I believe Your Word that I have been crucified with Christ, buried and raised with Him in a newness of life. I claim resurrection life as my life. I have been raised into the heavenly places, and I believe that I am now seated at the right hand of the Father. It's confessing truth. You don't have to necessarily understand it, but because, Father, Your Word says it, I believe it. I choose to accept it. Don't stumble over the mind like the Greeks did, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 2. How they stumbled over the mind of it. And don't be like the Jews who, struggle, who struggle, uh, stumbled over the, the feeling of it. Accept it by faith. This is the reality of it. And I choose as an act of my will to claim that Christ is my life, my power, and my identity. I thank you that my my identification, that my union, my oneness with Christ, that I'm now in Him... That makes me totally acceptable and that all my need is now met by Christ Jesus. I yield myself totally to the indwelling Christ for obedience. Do with me whatever you choose. Glorify and manifest your Son through me in His identity. That is a dangerous prayer only because it's a prayer of letting go of what you have held on to to keep yourself safe. But it it will be the second greatest prayer you will ever ever pray because it will allow you to experience the life that you asked for the first time you prayed. It will allow you to experience the reality that you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ now lives in you the abundant life that He came to give us. I strongly recommend that you take that prayer home. And don't wait till tomorrow. You can if you want. Rest with God. But pray that prayer as soon as you can. And let God be God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have covered so much tonight. I marvel at how fast that we've covered this material, Father, and I'm trusting that um, some of it stuck. That these people will have heard the wonderful glory of the truth of the cross, that they were set free. Set free from themselves, set free from the world, set free from the law, set free to know you. Set free to have you live within them, And that they no longer have to struggle through life, but can now trust you and rely upon you. And I pray, Father, that they will respond with the only way that they can now. One of trust and surrender. To let you live. So, Father, speak to us. Work in our hearts. Expose anything we're holding on to. Anything that's preventing the real life, your life, from bursting forth, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www dot crossways to